Good evening, everybody. Welcome. Glad you could make it here to be with us Wednesday night for all of those of you in Appleton and Stevens Point at our other campuses there. And those of you who are joining us online tonight, welcome. Glad you could make it. Uh, We're just going to continue our study in these world religions and these false uh, religious sects that we've been uh, talking about and continue to delve into some of that subject matter. So welcome, glad you're here tonight. And uh, we'll have hopefully a little time at the end of the session tonight if you want to uh, text me and send in some questions. We'll maybe have a little Q&A at the end again. All right, so last week we talked, or two weeks ago, we talked about the language and the psychology of the sects. Again, S-E-C-T-S, sects. And the key things that we need to know about their outlook on the world and why they can seem so antagonistic toward us sometimes and why they're so isolated from the rest of Christianity. We talked about the typical psychological profile of a sect member. How do they look at the world? Is the world an accepting place or is the world a threatening place? That has a lot to do with whether or not they're gonna thrive in one of these false groups. Uh, And then, they're asking the question, who am I going to accept as the authority figure in my life? How much am I going to allow this person to dictate the structure of my day-to-day living? Uh, typically, these members that are open to these kinds of teachings, are, they, they just have difficulty thinking for themselves. They're much more comfortable letting someone else do all their decision-making for them, and they are prime candidates to join these groups. We saw how the sect members' training can paint a very scary picture of the outside world, and if he is easily influenced, this will isolate him and prejudice him toward any group or person that is not aligned with his sect's teaching. Uh, We talked about the spiritual bondage, too, that happens to the sect member and an emotional bond or soul tie, particularly to that that group's uh, leader, and it often has to be broken. The soul tie has to be broken uh, for that person to come out of that group. And finally, we saw how institutional dogmatism intimidates the group's members into everybody thinking the same, saying the same thing, because they're afraid of being thrown out of the group. Uh, We also took a look at uh, uh, one of the world's largest sects, and that is the Jehovah's Witnesses and their founder, Charles Taze Russell, and the early beginnings of his Watchtower Tract Society. We discovered that he could neither read nor write in Greek or Hebrew, yet he managed to retranslate our entire Bible into the Jehovah's Witness version of the Bible, which is called the New World Translation. So if you can imagine reinterpreting all of Scripture into the English language without having any knowledge of the original languages, Greek or Hebrew. Amazing. It didn't happen. (laughs) It was just his version. We learned that Jehovah's Witnesses... Uh, Their doctrine is nothing like Orthodox Christian doctrine. They deny all of the doctrinal pillars of the Christian faith. They deny the Trinity, the deity of Jesus Christ, the physical resurrection of Jesus, and the return of Jesus, the eternal punishment of sinners, the reality of hell, the eternal existence of the human soul, and the validity of the atonement or the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. They deny all of it. 
Uh, we quoted directly from Jehovah's Witness literature where we discover that they believe that our do- uh, doctrine of the Trinity was inspired by Satan, that the Holy Spirit is not a person, but he is a force, not a person, that Jesus was not in a physical body when he rose from the dead, but was instead only a spirit, that Jesus in the spirit form actually returned to earth in 1914 to cleanse an invisible temple of which we do not know where the location of the temple was at that time and finished that process in four years, 1918, Jesus, the invisible Jesus, cleansed the invisible temple and he did it in four years. Finally, we took time to contrast all of Russell's teaching on the Christian basics to what our scriptures actually say and to see how different Jehovah's Witness teaching is from ours. Okay, so we're just gonna keep right on moving ahead. We're gonna delve into another false sect, which is Mormonism or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Little bit of historical background on the Mormons. They were founded in New York State near Palmyra, New York in April of 1830 by Joseph Smith Jr., the son of Joseph Sr. and Lucy Smith. Both Sr. and Junior Smith were what was known then as treasure seekers. It was a, uh, a, a form of employment, I guess you could call it, that was looked upon by the general public as an occult practice because of the divining methods they used. And it was actually what they were doing was against the law at that time in New York State. Uh, Treasure seeking involved using seer stones or peep stones, which were placed in certain hats and then partially covered. And then as the person looked into the hat, the location of the treasure that they were seeking would be revealed. So Joseph Smith Sr. wrote a lot about his son's uh, ability to tell fortunes, to locate uh, particular objects uh, through these seeing stones and having various supernatural powers. Regardless of junior and senior's claims, they were both considered frauds by the general public and junior was convicted of money digging on March 20th, 1826, It was the equivalent of financial fraud because people would pay him to do this treasure seeking even though he knew there was no treasure out there. Later, after the Mormon church was more established, Joseph Smith Jr. denied that he had ever been a treasure seeker even though his conviction for doing this was well documented. Uh, The use of seer stones continued even after Joseph Smith founded the Mormon church. He owned at least two seer stones, which he had early employed for treasure seeking before he founded the church. He retained possession of those stones. And then other early Mormon leaders, such as Hiram Page, David Whitmer, and Jacob Whitmer, also owned seer stones. Seer stones are mentioned in the Book of Mormon and in other Latter-day Saint scriptures. For example, Smith would place the stones uh, after the beginning of the Mormon church in a white stovepipe hat, and then he would lean over and cover the entire opening of the stovepipe hat with his face, and then that would shut out any external light, and then he would gaze into the hat. 
He claimed that eventually divine light would appear in those stones and through that divine light, he would A, receive divine guidance or B, receive translation for the words that had been dictated to him by the prophet angel Moroni, which became the Book of Mormon. So there were two reasons why he kept uh, the, the, uh, the peep stones that he used uh, and just his testimony was, hey, this is how I get my guidance from God and this is how I find out what has been written on these golden tablets, which later became the Book of Mormon. Okay, I know this is, doesn't this sound like a science fiction book? <laughs> it's incredible. The further I studied this and read about it, the more I'm like, what? <laughs> what does he do? <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. Anyway, the beginning of the Mormon church, it was 1820 when Smith received a real, his first heavenly vision. Uh, and in that year, he was allegedly the recipient of a marvelous vision in which God the Father and God the Son materialized and spoke to young Smith as he prayed in a, in a neighboring forest. The two personages, the Father and the Son, we're, we're going to have the slides up as soon as we can. We've had one computer break down today and we're using a second one that's an old one and we don't, there it is. The two personages took a rather dim view of the, okay, so the, remember, God the Father, God the Son appeared to Joseph Smith, 1820, and they, uh, and he's praying out in the woods, and they say to him, they took a rather dim view of the Christian church, and for that matter, of the world at large, and they announced, the Father and the Son, that a restoration of true Christianity was needed, and that he, Joseph Smith Jr., had been chosen to launch this new dispensation. And of course, nothing happened as a result of that first vision. And then fast forward three more years, 1823, when he had a second visitation. And uh, this is from Joseph Smith's own book, The Pearl of Great Price, quoting him, the angel Moroni, the glorified son of Mormon, the man for whom the famous book of the same name is titled, The Book of Mormon, appeared beside Joseph's bedside and thrice repeated his commission to the awestruck treasure hunter. He did not write this account down until some years later. So in 1827, another four years, claim, he, Smith claimed that he finally received the golden plates upon which was written the Book of Mormon. He said that he unearthed the plates in a hill near Palmyra, New York. And Smith began to translate the reformed Egyptian hieroglyphs, hieroglyphics inscribed on the golden plates. And he did the translation by means of the Urim and Thummim, a type of miraculous spectacles, which the angel Morani provided this budding seer. So the translation of the plates into the Book of Mormon happened between 1827 and 1829. Uh, and at that time, an itinerant school teacher named Oliver Cowdery was converted to Joseph Smith's version of Christianity, and he began helping with the translation of these tablets. He would sit on one side of a curtain, and he would take dictation as Smith read to him from the imaginary golden tablets, translating with the angel's help. Remember, he's got the goggles on. Uh, from the reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics into English. It's interesting that Cowdery, sitting on the other side of that curtain, never saw 
those golden tablets, nor did he ever lay eyes on those magic spectacles. Ever. No one's ever seen either one. According to the Pearl of Great Price, on May 15th, 1829, John the Baptist, in person, was dispatched by Peter, James, and John to the humble state of Pennsylvania with orders to confer the Aaronic priesthood on Joe and Oliver Cowdery. Okay, so Aaron was the priest underneath Moses, and the priesthood underneath Moses is titled the Aaronic priesthood. And so uh, John the Baptist shows up in person uh, and appears to Joseph Smith and confers the priesthood of Aaron onto Joseph Smith and to his helper, Oliver Cowdery. And the Book of Mormon was completed and copyrighted in 1830, and Smith, along with Cowdery and Smith's brothers, Hiram and Samuel, plus David and Peter Whitmer Jr., founded what they called a new religious society titled the Church of Christ, which a few years later became the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So from here, he was in New York, he moved to Ohio, mostly because he was so unpopular in New York, and he was constantly being uh, ridiculed and exposed in the newspapers and threatened with arrest. He said, enough of New York, and he and Oliver moved to uh, the state of Ohio. Um, And in Ohio, their particular church grew to 16,000 members in six years. So he found fertile soil in the state of Ohio. From Ohio, he moved on to Missouri, I'm assuming because the people of Ohio eventually caught up with him too. And then back across the Mississippi River from Missouri into a small town called Nauvoo, Illinois. Uh, Each move directed by what he said was the revelation from God. As they put their roots down in Nauvoo, their practice of polygamy began to attract a lot of attention from the public and the authorities. There was a newspaper that started in Nauvoo called the Nauvoo Expositor, and they began to circulate around that area of Illinois and Missouri with the sole purpose of exposing this unlawful and immoral practice that Joseph Smith and his group engaged in, speaking of polygamy. So there was this pattern, obviously, that developed Public criticism followed Joseph Smith from New York to Ohio to Missouri and back into Illinois. And finally, Smith ordered his followers to do whatever was necessary to destroy the Nauvoo Expositor. Their plot was discovered only after the offices of the Expositor were ransacked and then Joseph and Hiram Smith, his brother, were put in jail to await trial. On June 27th, 1844, a mob gathered outside of Carthage, Illinois, the jail there, where the the Smiths were being held, and they stormed into the jail, and they beat the Smith brothers to death in their jail cell. So Smith's second in command was named Brigham Young. Uh, Maybe you've heard of Brigham Young University in Salt Lake City, Utah. It is named after the second in command to Joseph Smith. He takes over leadership of the Mormons, and finally in 1846, it was time to move again, and so he took a portion of the Mormon church, the clan, out of Missouri, 
through the western wilderness and they settled by Great Salt Lake in Utah and they established Mormon headquarters there. Brigham Young was a strong, ruthless leader and he was the one who gave orders for what is now known as the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Uh, what happened? Mormon followers in Salt Lake City attacked a group of about 120 settlers whose wagon train moved into the area around Salt Lake, not realizing that, the, that Brigham Young and his followers had already claimed that area for themselves. All 120 people in that wagon train were killed, and it took the U.S. government 20 years to complete the prosecution of the Mormon military general in charge of that massacre. His name was John D. Lee. He was executed by a firing squad in 1877. At the time he was excommunicated from the, church, the Mormon church and Brigham Young issued an order to the church to keep silent about this massacre. Then he was, Lee was reinstated into the Mormon church as a member in good standing in 1961. And so these are the first two great leaders of the Mormon church. Joseph Smith, a convicted liar and fraud, and Brigham Young, a ruthless man capable of silencing the entire church in light of their guilt in the murder of 120 non-Mormon settlers. Let's talk a little bit about the Mormon Bible. Actually, Mormons accept our King James Version of the Bible, quote, as far as it is translated correctly. To the Bible, they have added three more of their own books, the Doctrine of Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, and the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is the book they lean on the most for teaching and doctrine, and it supplies the details of how they believe the kingdom of God is unfolding along with its future. The Book of Mormon is the history of two ancient people groups which were located on the American continent, these two ancient people groups were the Jaredites who migrated from Babylon around... Now remember, everything I'm telling you is what they wrote. <laughs> this is not historical fact. I'm just writing down exactly what their, their books talk about, the Book of Mormon. Okay, so the Jaredites migrated from Babylon around 2250 BC to the United States. They were punished by God after they arrived here because of spiritual corruption and their race ceased to be. A second group led by a man named Lehi who arrived in South America around 600 BC and then Lehi's son Nephi took over leadership of the people after Lehi's death. But this civilization split into two groups, the Nephites and the Lamanites the Lamanites, according to the Book of Mormon, are the ancestors of our current Native American population. Now, of course, this whole history is absurd. And it's not documented. It has been examined by history departments in several U.S. universities and found to contain no truth whatsoever. But that doesn't bother Mormons. They still believe this is how the Americas were settled and how God chose their ancestors as his people. Forget Columbus and forget the pilgrims. This is how it really happened. And so this history was written by a man called Mormon 
whom Smith said was a prophet historian on gold tablets, which made their way into Mormon's son's possession, he being Moroni, also according to Smith, who was an angelic prophet historian, which then made their way to Joseph Smith and the account of the final battle between the Nephites and the Lamanites. These gold plates, supposedly written in reformed Egyptian and translated by Joseph Smith with the help of special glasses given him by Moroni, these became the Book of Mormon. There is no historical proof that Mormon or Moroni ever existed. And so this is what the Mormon church thinks about their book in relation to our Bible. The Bible, its history of the dealings and providences of God with man upon the Eastern continent is one witness for the truth. The Book of Mormon is another witness to the same effect. In other words, they're putting the Book of Mormon and our Bible on the same, on the same level. The promise concerning other sheep, John 10, 16, was realized by the appearance of Christ to the Nephites. Now, there is no linguistic, historical, or archaeological evidence of the existence of these two civilizations described in the Book of Mormon. All of its claims have been refuted and proved to be false. The book is untrue biblically, historically, and scientifically, wrote William Duncan Strong from the Department of Anthropology, Columbia University in New York City. Okay, so you have their word against our word. You have their word against history's word. You have their word against archaeology's word. So it's up to us to make that decision. Who are we going to believe? Uh, no historical proof of any of the things happening that they say happened, especially regarding these two civilizations that started settling in the Americas. I want to take a real quick look through Mormon doctrine, and the, we're going to do a comparison right up on the screen uh, from a table that I borrowed from the uh, internet, and uh, it's just, it was so well done that I was like, I'm just going to copy and paste this into PowerPoint, we're going to go through that here. And so let's take a look at it. These are doctrines or doctrinal comparisons between Mormon doctrine and Christian doctrine. First, regarding the nature of God, specifically the Trinity. The Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but are different entities. The Son is not eternal, but is a created being. The, there was a time when Jesus did not exist in his current form. Christianity, the Bible teaches that the Trinity is the Christian doctrine of one eternal God, eternally manifest in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are inseparable, they are one in nature, purpose, and being, especially in their coexistence in eternity. The nature of God concerning the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is divine, but only in the sense of being an exalted man. He is not equal with the Father and is not to be worshipped in the same way. He was a created being, separate from God the Father. Nowhere in the scriptures does it ever say that Jesus was a created being. We'll get into that in just a bit. Jesus was not created. He has always existed and coexisted with the Father in heaven. Again, Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer, therefore the spirit brother of all human beings. He is unique only because he was conceived physically by God the Father. If you can imagine 
Mormon doctrine equating Jesus Christ as being the spirit brother of Lucifer who later became Satan. Jesus for us is the son of God and is one with God the Father. He is God and is presented in the Old Testament prophecies as a son who will be called mighty God. He is worshiped as God in Luke 24, 52, Philippians 2, 5 through 7, Colossians 2, 9, and Hebrews 1, 3. Jesus for us and from the scriptures, the Christian scriptures, is God in human flesh. The nature of God again regarding the Holy Spirit. Holy Ghost, according to the Mormons, and Holy Spirit are different terms in Mormonism. Holy Ghost is the third person of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit represents the person of God, but is not a distinct person. Okay, very confusing language. I have no idea what they meant there. (laughs) But the Holy Spirit and the Holy Ghost for us are one and the same. The Holy Spirit is a person, not an it. He is not a representational term as they think of him. He is equal with God, according to Acts 5. He is eternal, according to Hebrews 9, and he teaches the believer. He teaches as God through the Spirit to us. He is God with us today, teaching the church, caring for the church. The nature of God versus spirit versus body. God the Father is an exalted man with a body. This is their belief about the nature of God. God the Father is an exalted man with a body, and men can become gods. As man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. Well, we don't believe that. God is a spirit, according to John 4.24. And the idea that man can become God is for us blasphemy. Even Jesus was considered guilty of blasphemy because he declared that he was God. The Jews considered that a blasphemous statement. But Mormons don't seem to have any problem with it. The nature of man, his pre-existence, in other words, they believe that you and I pre-existed as spirit beings in heaven before we were actually created. This is what they say. Humans are incarnated spirit children of God the Father, including Jesus and Lucifer. Okay, so he just groups Jesus and Lucifer together with us as pre-created beings existing by the Spirit in heaven before creation happened. Then the next slide, all of us, including humans, Jesus, God, and any other gods pre-existed in eternity as intelligences prior to joining the process of eternal progression. There's a mouthful. The Bible speaks for us, again, comparing to Christianity, the Bible speaks of God's foreknowledge of each human prior to conception, Jeremiah 1.5, but nothing to indicate actual pre-existence. You and I did not pre-exist as spirit beings in heaven or wherever they say it was before we came into being. Uh, And this is more an example of Mormon theology adding to something in their literature that does not exist in our scriptures. They're just kind of pulling this stuff out of wherever and writing it down and saying this is the way it was. Regarding the nature of man, the sin nature of man, the fall of man in the garden, Mormons say that Adam's sin opened the way for God's ultimate plan of salvation, 
which was man's exaltation to being a god or godhood. And it is only through that plan that men can become gods. Were it not for the fall of man, there would be no procreation. In other words, they're saying the, the, the fall of man was a good thing because it opened up the door for us to, to enter into God, godhood and be equals with God. Man's eternal destiny, according to the scriptures, the Christian scriptures, is one of two possibilities. Eternal life with God for those whose faith is in Jesus Christ, perfected but not God's, or eternal separation from God for those who do not. Regarding the virgin birth of Jesus, Jesus was conceived by a physical union between God the Father and Mary. We do not believe that. We believe Jesus was conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit. Mary remained a virgin until after the birth of Jesus. Regarding the true church, the church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, is the only true church. It is the restoration of what was lost after the first decades of the original church, according to them. According to us, the true church of Jesus is invisible. It is comprised of all people in history who have placed their faith in the true Savior, Jesus Christ, regardless of race or denomination or tradition. The gospel, uh, the good news of Jesus Christ. In Mormonism, the gospel is referred to as the restored gospel, which involves pre-existing spirit children to be born of earthly parents who pass through life on earth, and they are given the opportunity, depending on their earthly worthiness, eventually to reach exaltation or godhood. For us, the gospel is the good news message of redemption of fallen humanity by the sacrifice and free gift of Jesus Christ through faith in him alone. Again, that's a contrast, way, way different concept of salvation than they have in the gospel. How about their version of, the, of salvation and the afterlife? In Mormonism, salvation has a dual meaning. One is a universal salvation, which came through the sacrifice of Jesus and given to all people, good and evil, and it refers only to the resurrection of the dead. In other words, everyone will be saved. Everyone's going to be resurrected from the dead in order to stand before God. The second meaning of salvation uh, refers to exaltation, which depends on how worthy a person, of course, in order to be worthy, you, of course, have to become a Mormon, is during their time on earth and in their obedience to God under Mormon doctrine. For us, salvation of the free gift of God through Jesus Christ comes to all who believe. Salvation from hell and salvation from eternal, uh, and salvation to eternal life. Heaven, let's talk about what they think about heaven. This, this will blow your mind. There are three levels of heaven for the Mormons. The celestial, which itself has three other levels, terrestrial and telestial. Celestial is reserved for faithful Mormons, especially for those who are married in a Mormon temple. Uh, terrestrial is reserved for those who are decent people but have rejected the Mormon gospel. And telestial is reserved for the wicked, obviously those who have rejected everything. Heaven, for us, is different. It is the dwelling place of God. It is the final destination of those who believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, period. How about creation? Uh, 
They generally teach that creation was a reorganization of existing matter. There are some references to an ex ex nihilo creation, meaning out of nothing. There are some references. We absolutely believe that creation is ex nihilo, out of nothing, because God spoke the worlds and the universe into existence. The Bible has been corrupted, according to them, and vital portions have been lost, deleted, or distorted. The Mormon scriptures and the Book of Mormon are a restoration of what was lost. So they, are, they have brought through their books and their literature correction to everything that they accuse our Bible of having lost. Christianity accepts the Bible as the authoritative word of God and that it alone is the word of God. And then finally, gods uh, in plural Uh, versus the fact that God is unique. They believe there is a plurality of gods, even gods who are existing in other worlds or on other planets. But but we worship the God of this planet. (laughs) Again, science fiction. One God, uh, for us, only God is God. He exists in three coexistent persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he alone is God, as we well know. All right, so that's the uh, Mormon church in all of its glory and what they believe. Uh, we won't go into it any further, but just if you have a question, just log it down, and then we'll try to discuss it after a little while. Again, it's just, it's so off, and there are so many different beliefs uh, that they have that after a while you start losing track, you can't keep track of all of it because it's, it just, there's so many little details and so many little things that they do to go off base. But that's it. That's it. And if you talk to a Mormon, if they're knocking on your door, they come to your house, and, you know, they may speak your language. Like I said before, they may speak really well. And they may use all of your terms. And you, they will use familiar terms that you hear on a Sunday morning. I guarantee the meaning for the terms that they are using is quite different from the meaning of the terms that you are accustomed to at this church. Let's talk about Christian science or the Church of Christ Scientist. How many of you have ever heard of Christian science? I've noticed a lot of people have never even heard of it. It's, It's just another sect, another denomination that exists in almost every major city in America. Christian science became part of the mind science movement in the 1800s. Other subgroups of the mind science movement include the Unity School of Christianity, mind science, religious science, and divine science. The birth of Christian science uh, began with the publication of the book Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures by Mary Baker Eddy. She was the founder of the Christian Science Church, 1875. At that time, although she professed that the book was given to her by divine revelation, it did not take long for people in the press and in the church to uncover the fact that this book had been plagiarized from an earlier book by a man named P.P. Quimby that was entitled The Science of Man. Those who study these movements and sects call Quimby the father of the Christian Science Church. And Mrs. Eddy, they refer to as the mother of the Christian Science Church. Quimby's self-proclaimed expertise was in the area of mental healing. And Mary Baker Eddy testified early on that she once had been completely healed from a serious back problem after spending a week 
under Quimby's care in 1862. This is out in the Boston area. That same year, Mrs. Eddy's third husband died of heart disease. She was 56 years old. She contested the autopsy report on her husband, Asa Eddy, and she hired a questionable physician to re-examine the autopsy report, and he, in turn, issued his own report. Mr. Eddy had died, according to this physician, of arsenic poisoning mentally administered. This prompted an investigation into the legitimacy of Eddie's uh, doctor, C.J. Eastman, and the investigation discovered that Dr. Eastman's medical credentials were completely bogus and that he was using them to run an unlicensed abortion clinic. He was sent to prison for 10 years and the hospital that he ran was shut down. Eddie, was later, uh, Eddie later refused to disown Eastman's autopsy report. She insisted in an editorial in the Boston Globe, 1882, that her husband had absolutely died of mental poisoning through malicious mesmerism. In 1904, the New York Times ran a lengthy expose on Mrs. Eddy's plagiarism of P.P. Quimby by running their publication side by side in the paper's columns. What she had previously described as revelation from God turned out to be revelation from P.P. Quimby. Later, Eddy was quoted, I should blush to write of science and health with key to the scriptures as I have, were it of human origin, and I, apart from God, were its author. But as I was only a scribe echoing the, the harmonies of heaven in divine metaphysics, I cannot be super modest in my estimate of the Christian science textbook. In other words, she was saying, if she alone took the credit for the writing of that first book of hers, uh, she would uh, have been discredited. But of course, because God spoke that book to her and God revealed all the truths in that book, then she is very proud of what is in there. And it is a great super, uh, a great uh, uh, ex expl explanation of divine metaphysics. Okay, so, <laughs> Eddie, Mary Baker Eddie, joins Muhammad. She joins Joseph Smith and Charles Taze Russell in proclaiming that divine revelation is the source for her literature and the founding of her movement. Divine revelation. Apparently, you know, it's really hard to contest divine revelation, isn't it, when people talk about it? If somebody says to you, God showed me, you know, if, if they said God showed them, you weren't there. You didn't hear it. You didn't see it. How are you going to contest that? How are you going to argue that, right? And that's what all of these leaders did. They just, they just testified to the fact that God revealed these things to them. This was all divine revelation. Therefore, it's, it's legitimate. You can't question it because God showed it to us. So apparently the fact that she had plagiarized most of her writings from other authors at, up to that point did not seem to bother her, nor did it bother the leaders who took up her mantle in future versions of the Church of Christ Scientists. Along with this divine revelation that was given which enabled her to write this primary textbook for Christian science, Eddie also claimed to have experienced a personal healing miracle which further confirmed that she was destined to found the movement. In 1886, Mrs. Eddie was severely injured in a fall. This is according, of, by the way, to the Christian science 
uh, website. So this is their version of what happened here. In 1866, she was severely injured in a fall and turned to the Bible as she had been accustomed to doing. All she had pondered in the past came strongly and clearly to her as she read an account of one of Jesus' healings, and she was immediately healed. Convinced that God had healed her, she spent the next several years searching the scriptures to understand the principle behind her healing, and she named her discovery Christian Science and explained it in the book in 1875, Science and Health. Uh, her testimony to her fall, by the way, and this near-death experience from that fall, even though she wrote about it here and proclaimed that God supernaturally healed her, all of that testimony was later refuted by the physician who attended to her injuries. His name was Dr. Alvin Cushing, and during his testimony under oath at a later court trial, he denied under oath that he ever believed or said that she was in a precarious physical condition. Later, Eddie wrote to a student that after her fall, Cushing had assigned certain medications to her and that he had resigned her to the life of a cripple. No such prognosis ever happened. In other words, what are we supposed to believe, really? At one point, she swore that she was completely healed. The next, that she had, been, she had three days to live. And elsewhere, that her physician refuted her claim to the near-death experience and insisted that she was always completely healthy. There's nothing wrong with her. She didn't even have a fall. She had never been resigned to the life of a cripple. While claiming a total healing from a non-existent affliction, and giving all the credit to her revelation of divine healing, which later became the basis for science and health with key to the scriptures, all of it was made up. And even her doctor testified in court that it was all made up. There was nothing wrong with her. And yet she built the book off of a supposed healing experience from something that was going to last for the rest of her life. Mary Baker Eddy died in 1910 from pneumonia. Although she taught that medicine was unnecessary for a person practicing her version of mind science and mind healing, she was a frequent user of morphine throughout her whole life. Let's compare some of the Christian science beliefs to our Orthodox Christian doctrine. First of all, regarding Trinity, the Trinity and the deity of Jesus Christ, Mary Baker Eddy wrote this, Jesus Christ is not God. As Jesus himself declared, but he is the son of God. The theory of three persons in one God suggests polytheism rather than one everlasting I am. And finally, Jesus as material manhood was not Christ. In other words, as Jesus, when Jesus was here on earth, as the son of God, he was not Christ. He was not the Messiah as the Bible speaks of him. So she directly disagrees with all the basics of our Christian doctrine, the Trinity. How about the doctrine of God and the Holy Spirit? The Jewish tribal Jehovah was a man-projected God, liable to wrath, repentance, and human changeableness. In other words, she didn't believe in the God, uh, the doctrine of the, uh, God the Spirit or God in the Old Testament at all. And then she said, God, Spirit, being all, nothing is matter God, divine principle, life, truth, love, soul, spirit, mind. That is her description of God, if you can figure out what in the world she meant there. Uh, how about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ? God is indivisible. 
Therefore, a portion of God could not enter a man, or in Mary's case, a woman. Jesus, the Galilean prophet, was born of the Virgin Mary's spiritual thoughts of life and its manifestation. In other words, his birth through Mary was all just thought up. Regarding healing miracles in the Bible uh, and our healing miracles today, the sick are not healed main, uh, merely by declaring there is no sickness, but by knowing that there is none. In other words, she declared the non-existence of sickness. And that is something that Christian science is very, very strict about. They will not acknowledge that sickness in the human body even exists today. And so, the so-called miracles that are contained in the Bible are neither supernatural nor preternatural. The so-called pains and pleasure of matter were alike unreal to Jesus. In other words, the healings that you read that Jesus did in the Bible were fictional. They did not happen because there was no such thing as pain and death and sickness to Jesus. How about the atonement of Jesus or, again, the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins? The material blood of Jesus was no more efficacious or, what's another word for efficacious? Effective? Yeah. The material blood of Jesus was no more effective to cleanse from sin when it was shed than when it was flowing in his veins. In other words, he died and shed his blood for nothing because there is, of course, nothing real about sin. The death and resurrection of Jesus Jesus' students, not sufficiently advanced to understand fully their master's triumph, did not perform many wonderful works until they saw him after his crucifixion and learned that he had not died. His disciples believed Jesus to be dead while he was hidden in the sepulcher, whereas he was alive. In other words, they don't really believe, or she didn't really believe that Jesus rose from the dead. The ascension of Christ... Until he himself ascended, or in other words, rose even higher in the understanding of spirit, God, Jesus' unchanged physical condition after what seemed to be death was followed by his exaltation above all material conditions, and his ex this exaltation explained his ascension. He rose above the physical knowledge of the disciples, and the material senses saw him no more. So he somehow or another mentally transformed, <laughs> and then invisibly went to heaven. <laughs> Okay, how about Satan and the existence of evil? She says, evil is but an illusion. It has no real basis. There was never a moment when evil was real. There was never a moment when evil was real. There is no sin. There is no evil. There is no devil, according to the Christian science beliefs. How about sinful nature, man's sinful nature and the existence of hell? The sinner makes his own hell by doing evil, and the saint his own heaven by doing right. Of course, she's saying by, by saying this, by doing evil, she's declaring evil to exist, even though she just said that evil doesn't exist. Make up your mind. In place of flames and odor, mental anguish is generally accepted as the penalty for sin. Mental anguish is what hell is going to be about. Even though there's not supposed to be anything for, such as sin or evil. Again, whoa, what do you mean? Heaven, 
The definition of heaven, it equals harmony. It equals the reign of, the, reign of spirit, not the spirit, but reign of spirit. It represents spirituality, bliss, and the atmosphere of soul, capital S, whatever all of that meant. And then for her, heaven is the reign of divine science. So if you firmly believe in her uh, doctrine, and if you firmly believe what she has written and follow her teachings, you, my friend, are in heaven. Salvation. Man, as God's idea, is already saved with an everlasting salvation. Just the thought of man from God meant man's salvation because we came from God. One sacrifice, meaning Jesus' sacrifice, however great, is insufficient to pay the debt of sin. Well, of course, because to her, there is no sin. But she's postulating that if there were sin, just this one sacrifice, however great, is totally insufficient to pay the debt of the sin of the whole world if the whole world actually is in sin, which it isn't. How about matter and the reality of matter? There is no intelligent sin, evil mind, or matter. There is no life, truth, intelligent, or substance in matter. All is infinite mind. Everything that you see and touch and taste and smell, experience, is all in the infinite mind. It's all in the infinite mind, capital M. That is God to her. And so as a result, none of this other stuff that we're experiencing is actually real. How about the existence of sin, sickness, and death? Again, uh, the devil uh, is, that belief in the devil is evil, even though there is no evil. <laughs> it is a lie. It is error. Sickness, sin, death, lust of the flesh, all of it is non-existent. Death is an illusion. It is the lie of life in matter. Matter has no life, hence it has no real existence. Again, she believed that there was no real existence in earthly matter. Now, when you start back away from this and get their belief in a little bit more perspective, uh, you begin to realize that in most of the mind science movements that were really prevalent back in the 19th century, they borrow heavily from the first century Gnosticism that we had mentioned earlier. In the first century church, especially where Greek thought was prevalent, a popular non-Christian sect existed at that time. They were called the Gnostics. Gnosticism was a wide, crazy variety. It had a little bit of Judaism in it. It had a little bit of Christian in it uh, and a whole lot of Greek influence. Uh, and they had an interest in gnosis or divine knowledge. And generally, they, were, they believed that there is first the great God or mind who has nothing to do with the corrupt physical world and then there is one less than this God who they call the Demiurge who was actually responsible for creating the world. <coughs> Excuse me. So you have God, the mighty God, who exists completely apart from creation, has no interaction at all with, with creation, and then you have this lesser God called the Demiurge who is responsible for creating all of this. Gnostics in this movement shunned the material world because they believed 
that the material world was created by this evil, clumsy entity called the Demiurge. He, it being slightly less than God. As a result, they only embraced the spiritual world. So Gnostics believed that God is too holy and perfect in his being to associate with humans. We're supposed to have a slide up on this. I don't know if there's... No slide. Okay. Listen carefully. Gnostics believed that God is too holy and perfect in his being to associate with humans. And so, there was no possibility of a personal relationship with God as Christians understood him. And because of this, the only real world for the Gnostic was and is the spirit world. Matter, thought, appetite, creation were all part of the physical world, which in God's eyes wasn't even real. He didn't even exist in that plane. God exists on one plane, completely, completely apart from creation, and God, or mind-spirit, is the only reality. The rest of this, on the earthly plane, even though it was created, supposedly, by this demi-urge, is actually not real. God, being spirit, is the only true reality, and so everything that we're connected with and everything that we're used to here is all not real. We're living in a dream, None of it actually exists. And because of these things, these things that, that, that are part of the material world don't exist, they do not matter, and therefore, because everything that is around us doesn't matter, and God isn't even concerned with it, it's okay to do whatever you want. You can live out your life however you want to live it in this life, because none of it is real anyway. This was the reasoning in the Gnostics, and that carried forward century after century after century in many different manifestations, and it finally, the the divine science movement in the uh, 1800s and on into today, they all subscribe to the same thing. And if you study Buddhism and if you study Hinduism, it's pretty much all the same thing too. They borrow heavily from that Gnostic thought. From Christian science language, regarding Christian science doctrine, it is obvious that Mary Baker Eddy was a 19th century version of a Gnostic teacher. It was not new teaching, even though everybody thought it was new and revelatory and fresh and cool and interesting, and it was nothing new. It was Gnosticism reworked, using more modern language while basically saying the same thing as the ancient Greek Gnostics. Okay, so uh, we're gonna pull to a close there. It's it's about 7.45. And I could go on and and do some more teaching on Islam, but before I do that, if I got into that, then there's not gonna be any time left for anything else. Does anybody want to text some questions? Uh, Appleton or Stevens Point or online? So I think my number is, should be up there uh, at some point, my, my, tech, my cell phone number, if you want to try to text me that. Can we get that up there, Tim or uh, Nancy? Okay, write this down. 920-252-3383.
3-3. Now may the texts begin to come. 920-252-3333. Any questions? If you don't have any questions, we're going to go on. Ooh, ding, ding, ding. Here it comes. Oh, <laughs> somebody's asking about the magic underwear. Uh, I don't know anything about the magic underwear. Honestly, I don't. I study, actually, the books that I've been studying don't even mention the magic underwear. Talking about Mormons. Uh, Mormons all have special underwear that they wear. Seriously. Um, and so, uh, honestly, I have no clue. And I didn't study that. Has anybody got any insight into the magic underwear? Uh, I know. It's probably very uncomfortable. Kind of like the king's new clothes, right? <laughs> What's that? Oh, that's right. You can't see the underwear unless you have the spectacles. Uh, can't those people we talk about, the Mormons, and think, think we're a cult? Doesn't it all just boil down to faith to some degree? Yes. And I'm sure that they probably think that we are a cult. It's just, who are you placing your faith in? Are you placing your faith in all of your good works and the church that you join and the doctrine that you believe? Or are you putting your faith in Jesus Christ? Uh, in the Christian faith, we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We trust him for our salvation. Not a whole bunch of sets of rules and books and who we, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all about that. They're so different from us. Here's one. Hello, Pastor Joe. I'm new to Celebration. I have attended a Bible study for a few weeks I would like to learn about Celebration Church's beliefs, uh, which I know very little. At what point will Bible study switch gears? In other words, when are you going to get out of here, Pastor Joe, so I can... In love of celebrating the Christian values and beliefs within. The deity slides today helped a little. It went a little fast. Yeah, I'm sorry. It, it did go fast tonight, and I, I understand that. However, you know, um, uh, this is going to be on our website Eventually, the church's website, if you go into media on the website, and you'll be able to listen to some of this stuff again, jot down notes and things like that. So just uh, check that out later on. The Gnostics and Christian scientists sound like the Matrix movies. Yes, the Matrix movies borrow very heavily from the Gnostic belief. And, uh, and of course, in the Matrix movies, it's like everything that you see around you is not real. It's all computer generated, you know, and all that stuff. So yeah, they borrow very heavily from that, and you're right. Uh, they, that's where we get all this stuff from, is from that Gnostic teaching. Uh, a lot, much is, of the Star Wars theology is, is ref, uh, found, has its foundation in that. Where do they get the idea of baptism of the dead? Again, that's a, a theological detail I didn't go into in my studies about the Mormons. They do believe in the baptism for the dead. In other words, when they baptize people in the temple, they're baptizing them in the name of one of their departed relatives, and supposedly that's going to help their relative get to heaven. That's it in a short uh, form uh, where they got the idea of it, <laughs> hey man, where did they get the idea of any of this stuff? I mean, it came to Joseph Smith in a revelation of God and an angel, and, he's, and the golden tablets that he dug up that nobody has ever seen, and the spectacles that he swore he could use to, to translate the Egyptian hieroglyphics on those golden tablets that nobody's ever seen. Uh, so where did they get this idea of Baptism for the dead, it's in there. It's Moroni's fault. 
Are you familiar with the college sect called the Navigators? Are they a good group? Yes, they're a very well-founded biblical group, not connected in any way to any of these sects. Don't Mormons believe in some, some faraway planet as their version of heaven? Well, you heard me talk about the fact that they believe that there are other planets and other solar systems that have other gods in them. And so those other planets and those other solar systems and their version of God, they exist the way it is. So that's, that's true. They do believe in that uh, a faraway planet, but not just one faraway planet. They believe in maybe millions of them. Who knows? Uh, how does anyone get convinced to be a Mormon? Did they get all this crazy info you provided from the get-go? Um, well, they, you know, they knock on doors. And their whole subject, as I talked about the very first teaching that I gave, was they're there for one purpose when they knock on your door, and that is to gather and not share. They are there to gather you in. That's their sole purpose. And they will do whatever they can. They will say whatever they can. They are trained to do this. They have extensive training. And they will talk your language and do whatever they can to bring you in. How do people get into it? Because they don't know the Bible, because they're searching for truth, because they're looking for fulfillment in their life, maybe they're lonely, maybe they've just gone through some rough patch in their life, and they're, they're caught by the knock on this door at a very vulnerable moment in their life, and the Mormon takes advantage of that and tries to get these people to come into their sect. Uh, if a child is born into one of these faiths and they don't know any better, why are they not considered worthy of going to heaven? Well, I mean, the, the child, if he doesn't know any better, and he goes and he dies, you know, uh, if he doesn't know any better, of course God, Jesus is going to receive him in because he didn't know any better. But that's different when the child grows into an adult and begins to take these practices seriously and understand it. Then, then he becomes accountable. Um, growing up Catholic, we were always taught that it was the true church. Please comment. Um, you know, really tonight I'm just going to focus on the Mormons and the Christian scientists and the cults, but the Catholic Church is not a cult, so I'm, that's why I haven't mentioned it in my teaching. Have you heard of Unitarian Universalists, and would you consider it a sect or a non-religion? It is a sect, and it's part of the divine science movement, the Unitarian Universalist Church. I don't know... I, I didn't study about them, but I do know that they, are part, they have their origins in the divine science movement, and for them, everything is God, everybody is one, everybody's going to be just fine in heaven if there is one. Um, seeing that all these do not believe in Jesus as their Savior or Father and Holy Spirit, are they all destined to hell? Well, according to the scriptures, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and accept him as your Lord and Savior and receive forgiveness for your sins... Your only other option is to spend eternity away from him when you die, and that is in hell. That is what we teach at Celebration Church. That's what the Bible teaches. It's a hard truth, but it is the truth, and it is what God said. Mormon's obsession with genealogy, again, I cannot comment on that because I didn't study through that far. All I know is that they are obsessed with their genealogies and tracing it all the way back. Remember, to the early tribes that settled in America. So they're, you know, they're either part of the Nephites or the Lamanites or the earlier ones that I mentioned. I can't pull it out of my brain right now. Uh, and it all, that's why they are obsessed. It's because they literally believe that they are descended from these two uh, people groups who, who first settled the United States and Latin America uh, in 
2,250 BC, and then finally 600 BC. That, they're obsessed with this stuff, and that's why they go back so far. Uh, Darren. <laughs> I am not commenting on that. That is derogatory. Although, you know what? It did occur to me about that. <laughs> the the, the uh, comparison between Moroni, the angel, and another word. Joe, didn't Hinduism and Buddhism exist centuries before Gnosticism? Yes. If so, how could they have borrowed from Gnosticism? Well, I'm not, I shouldn't say borrowed. I'm should, I should say they think along the same lines and much of what they, they believe and, and, uh, and practice comes, it's, it's almost identical if you start getting into their teachings. It's just that they've added some mythical gods to it so that it, you know, it makes it look a little different and their practice a little different, but basically it all comes from the same root. Uh, would you say these cult leaders are, were evil or just misled? The leaders are just flat out evil. You know, they're just, they're, they are just not only deceived, but they're totally willing to go and deceive others, much of it for financial gain, much of it for the fame and fortune that it brought, much of it from their own insecurities and their hunger to want to lead people instead of being followers. And their lack of love for the truth of Jesus Christ and the word of God. All of that. I mean, you, you heard about the history of Joseph Smith. The guy started out as a, as a diviner, as, a, neck, as a, uh, a sorcerer, basically, in his home state of New York. And his dad, it was just it was a bizarre start. And they never sat down long enough with a Christian preacher to figure out whether what they were doing was right or wrong. They just kept right on... Uh, locomoting right on through the whole thing. It was insane. Uh, but again, we have these kinds of people today, probably hundreds of millions of people all over the world like this. Uh, that's why it's so tragic, and this is where sin has brought us. Don't some people get fulfillment from choosing these very, these religions? Don't some people get fulfillment from choosing these? Uh, you know, they get fulfillment from the sense of they're in a community, Remember we talked about when we started tonight about their sense of how they view the world? How do you look on the world? Is it a threatening place? Typically for the people that join these sects, the world is a very threatening place and they're, they're unable to determine their own future for themselves. They're unable to make choices about what they want to do with their life. And as a result, they've got to have somebody constantly telling them what to do next, what to believe next. These are the people that typically get sucked into these sects. And uh, it, it, yes, it's very fulfilling for them as far as emotionally. It, it feeds an emotional hunger in them. Spiritually, it does absolutely nothing for them but bring them more death and more disappointment. And, you know, I mean, some of these people live their whole lives and they look like perfectly normal people. You know, they look perfectly happy. And so it, it's hard to make the, the judgment that they're not being fulfilled. Well, there, there is a certain amount of fulfillment for them, but it's all in the emotional realm. It isn't in the realm of reality where, regarding their personal relationship to God. Um, how do you tell them to leave? Uh, well, uh, if they knock on your door... Is that what you mean? I don't know what you mean by that. If they knock on your door, you just smile and say, sorry, I'm not interested. Be polite. Uh, 
So that, that's what I'd say. Uh, oh, then you, does it hurt to take their literature to get them to be quiet? <laughs> and get off my porch! And then you can throw it in the trash. That's fine. Yes, you can do that. That's fine. It's up to you. It's whether or not you want to engage in an argument that day. So, um, faraway planet. Yep, we talked about that. Anybody in the audience tonight here, the congregation here tonight, you guys got any? Got about one more minute. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. And the Christians are saying, okay, I'm right, this is the Bible, here's where it says. Uh-huh. How as a Christian can you even go up to somebody and, and, and tell them they're wrong? Or try to show them, show them the way? Does that make sense? It's very difficult to just walk up to somebody that's in one of these groups and say you're wrong. That is not, that's, uh, but it's not the approach that you can take because they won't listen to you. They're, they're completely convinced that what they believe is true. The only approach that you can take, if you want, and that is to become a friend. You know, befriend them. And, and one, one at a time. You can't solve the problem of the whole group. You just, one at a time. And if you make one person, maybe a coworker or a neighbor or somebody that you know is in one of these sects, just, if you, could, if you can develop a confidence in them that you're not there to hurt them, Remember, this is how they look at the world. The world for them is a threatening place. So if they can get over the fact that you are not a threat to them, that you're a friend, and they really start to believe that, then you have a chance. But it only happens one person at a time. You're not going to walk into a Mormon church on a Sunday morning and convince everybody that they're completely off their rocker. It ain't going to happen, okay? Any others? All right. Yeah. Yes. Who created the illusion and what is the purpose of it? I know. Uh, Yeah, there's there's always questions like that, questions after the question, that they just conveniently forget to bring up because that's a a legitimate question. Uh, Who created the illusion if it's all an illusion? It's got to come from somewhere, right? So, but for them, God is mind. Okay, and God for them is just one great force in the universe they call mind with a capital M, and that's where all reality exists and comes from after that. It's, it's crazy. Uh, yeah, somebody suggested we pray for them tonight, which of course we want to do. Yeah, one more. No, they're not a the cult. It's their doctrine. The, they, their doctrine is so completely different from ours that, it's, that they are obviously completely away from any kind of biblical foundation. The Catholic Church, they believe in the Trinity. They believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. They believe in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. They celebrate Easter with us just like we do. I mean, you know, they believe in the same basics that we do. How they practice them are much different, obviously, and how they get to salvation is much different than we do, and we don't believe in how they, 
how they get to their salvation. But that's not the discussion that we're having tonight. These people that we've been talking about are so far out there and so far away from anything that we read in the Bible, it's not even close, okay? But they come off as if they're just like us. That's the problem I have with these people, okay? And, and as a result, we, are, we have to be more on the ball regarding these particular sects because they make themselves look just like us. The Catholics, they're not trying to look like us. They're happy with the way they are, you know? They're not out to recruit anybody. They're just, you know, basically culturally always been the way they are and they're fine. So, you know, but they're... You know, it's, it's just different between the Catholic Church and the cults, I'll just say that much. Um, <laughs> I find that a chalk outline of a body and a few Watchtower magazines laying on the ground and some empty shell casings on my sidewalk keep them moving along. <laughs> and with that, we're going to close in prayer for the cults and the, and the members. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you, Lord, for this study that we've been able to have together. We uh, thank you, Lord Jesus, that uh, for us, you have given us the wonderful, precious word of God. And we thank you for who you are, Lord Jesus, the God of the universe the savior of our souls, the one who forgives us of our sin, the one who redeemed us from our sins through the blood that you shed on the cross and your glorious resurrection from the dead. Oh God, we look forward to that day when we also will join you in that final resurrection and Lord, live with you in eternity forever in that great coming kingdom of God. And Lord, we pray for those who have been taken in by these false religions. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help them uh, somehow or another for those in there, in there who are innocently deceived, who need to come out, who can come out, that Holy Spirit, you would speak truth to their hearts and draw them out. Lord, if, if it's your will for us to befriend some of them, that you would help us to do that, to be kind and loving and yet at the same time firm in telling them the truth from the word of God. Lord Jesus, we pray, Lord, for every, all this biblical truth that we've been exploring, that you'll cement it deep in our hearts and help us to understand our faith better so that we know for sure where we stand, that we stand on the solid rock who is Jesus Christ and the solid rock of your word, O oh God. And so we love you and we thank you for this time together tonight in your name. Amen.